Five to Nine is a podcast for the side hustle generation. For those who make their bread in a nine to five job and fulfill their dream in a five to nine hustle. For the moonlighting culture. For those who want more. We sit down with inspiring people for a conversation on how they fulfill their passions with creative projects. And why they do what they do. Let's, Let's jump, jump in. in. This episode of 5 to 9, we talk to Caitlin Thompson, the director of content at ACAS and creator of side project Racket. Racket is an independent magazine that celebrates the art, ideas, style, and culture that surround tennis. This side project has generated a cult following since its launch in 2016 and has been commended as quote unquote extremely dope, a rare tennis magazine with taste, and deliciously smart in tons of publications such as the New York Times, the Harvard Neiman Lab, and the Monocle. And ever since learning about Racket, we've been seeing it everywhere in magazine stores and tons of boutique stores in New York. So keep an eye out for it. It's really, really beautifully made and the content is very tastefully curated. For sure, get that. And in this episode, we talked about her fascinating upbringing in Montreal. What it was like realizing that although being very successful in tennis during her teen years, she didn't want to pursue the sport professionally. Her obsession with multifaceted people. Why she decided to do a side project after having a child. And how she learned to ruthlessly prioritize. So, you better ruthlessly listen to this episode. Mmm, I ruthlessly agree! <laughs> Welcome. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for coming, Caitlin. Yeah, you're welcome. Hello, Caitlin. Hi. We are super <laughs> excited to have you today. Um, tell us about, let's start with your origin story. Um, tell us your background, where you came from, your life, how you got to where you are. Wow. Okay. That's an all-encompassing question. Like <laughs> birthday, like my son chart, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, you, you can go deep. <laughs> okay. Uh, mm. Let's see. I'll try to keep this interesting and hit the high points. Um, I was born in Montreal. My parents are classical musicians who were cool. in the Montreal Symphony at the time. So they were American citizens um, living abroad. Um, and that, until now, until this summer, when I will celebrate my 10 years in New York City, um, living in Montreal is the longest I've ever lived in one place. Mm -hmm. So I lived in Montreal for 10 years. Um, I grew up there. I speak a little bit of French, but it's kind of shitty. Can I curse on your podcast? Yes, Great. Um <laughs> We. We. Please So growing up there was great and really actually um, more, I think, influential. As I understand it, as I get older, I understand how influential and how important it was to me to grow up in Montreal, which seems kind of weird because it's kind of a town that people like and they have good food and architecture and stuff like that. But it's also sort of a, you know, it's it's not New York City or, you know, Berlin or anything like that. But it was really interesting to grow up in not America, but so close to America. Mm -hmm. um, it was a city that was really creative. My parents obviously were in this like very, very sort of artistic community filled with immigrants and world travelers, multilingual, you know, interesting enthusiasts of all manner. Um, you know, and Montreal is really sort of an interesting like, sort of hedonistic place in the sense that it's like a very... This is going to sound dumb because this word has kind of lost its meaning, but it's like a place for the senses. It's like a sensual mm -hmm. experience. People there, and I was just there like two weeks ago, you know, people there smoke cigarettes and they love their food and drink and 
you know, there's a little bit of like, you know, a joie de vivre there that is really French and actually very sort of ingrained. And it's a cafe culture society. And the, even though it's cold and even though it's Canadian and Canadians can be a little bit prim and proper, Montreal itself is like a very diverse, interesting sort of um, dynamic place. And so that was the first place I lived, which I really, really liked. Um, didn't play tennis there because obviously it's very cold, but I got really into skiing Hmm. And, you know, generally have, like, really, really fond memories. The part of Montreal I grew up in is called NDG, Notre Dame de Glace, and it's, like, sort of the bohemian, or at least it was at the time, like, kind of neighborhood. It was, like, the East Village of Montreal. And, like I said, I just had this, like, childhood full of, like, my parents going off to, you know, Korea for a couple weeks to do a concert with the Montreal Symphony, a concert tour, and coming back with, you know, clothes and silks and shoes that lit up for me and you know my brother and sister and it was just like sort of a cool sort of overstimulated but fun chaotic childhood my parents are mm. lunatics by the way both of them <laughs> you know like a lot of sort of creative musical people but yeah. they to their credit were always very into travel into ideas into you know sitting around staying up late you know, having drinks with their friends, and I would always, like, sort of be this kid on the side being like, whoa, this is so cool. This is, like, a famous cellist who's, like, holding court in my living room while wow. my parents are all, like, you know, jamming out and doing music and telling stories, and it was fun for the most part. Um, I moved to Atlanta when I was 10. Um, my parents got jobs in the Atlanta Symphony and the Atlanta Ballet, respectively, still playing classical music. My dad's a trumpet player. My mom's a viola player. Wow. And uh, living there was weird. I have a lot of feelings about the South, none of which are, like, particularly, you know, surprising. I don't, I don't think it was shocking how much race and class was different in the States. Um, something I think, again, I have only kind of appreciated as an adult looking back, being like, oh, in Canada, race isn't tied to... Um, your class necessarily mm. poverty isn't racialized uh you know immigrants sort of seamlessly flowed in and out of the city and country of canada the city of montreal and the country of canada and really the only way that you would get sort of conflict would be are you an english speaker or are you a french speaker and obviously in atlanta that the dynamics were really really sort of hard to understand at first and very different um that said i got really into tennis i got pretty good at it and i earned myself a scholarship to college which was great because um, i was a good tennis player but not like a great one how'd you first um find tennis it's a good question i interestingly my grandmother who just turned 90 and played up until she was 83 every day i would wow. go and spend a lot of time with her um in phoenix arizona uh every summer and she was like she kind of noticed that i was a little bit shot out of a cannon as a kid I'm still shot out of a cannon. It's like my partner, David, who I do the magazine with, like describes me that way. And I didn't realize he was describing me that way consistently to other people. And then I met somebody and he was like, oh, yeah, you're the one who's shot out of a cannon. And so <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess that's it's like. Circus act. Yeah, I guess so. Sure. <laughs> hey. Um, but I think my grandmother noticed that I was like a kid who just like was bouncing off the wall. So she gave me a tennis racket and she used to go take me out um, all the time. They had a like high school right in their backyard with tennis courts. And I got pretty good at it. I was good at sports generally. So, like, tennis was a fun thing that we did together, and I loved my grandmother. She's awesome. Um, and, like I said, made her own clothes and her own tennis dresses, and she's, like, cool. And, like, in the 70s, like, had a cool, like, bob. And, you know, she was just, like, she's this really cool lady. Um, and so she taught me how to play. And then when I was, like, 10, 11, 12, growing up in this place, finally, that had, like, warm weather, I 
showed some aptitude because I had had a little bit of, you know, practice with her. And I was, I kind of, I picked it up pretty quickly and I kept getting better and better, which was a good sign. Um, and then it wasn't until I was like 16 or 17 that I was like, huh, I'm good at this, but I'm not going to be great at this, which is a hard thing to realize, especially if you have parents who are good at that thing. Mm. So good that they are they like exceptionally good at it. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? Like my parents are among, my dad especially, like is among the greatest trumpet players living. That is a really weird niche thing and not, I'm sure you couldn't name very many trumpet players, but mm -hmm. you know, it, on its face, it's like a pretty cool thing to be that good and that specialized at something. I realized that wasn't me, yeah. but I also really enjoyed it and thought to myself, oh, if I can't make a living doing this, like as a professional, which it was pretty clear to me that I couldn't. Because I could see the players, even in juniors, who were clearly going to make more of a go at it than I was. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to do it to the absolute best of my ability. I'll try as hard as I possibly can, knowing that I'm going to fall short at some point. But see if I can get a tennis scholarship and go to a school that has a program of study that will sort of take me into the next phase of my life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I knew from, you know, like I described growing up in a storytelling household with, you know, Lots of interesting characters coming in and out. I started a newspaper when I was 11 for our block where I would report stories on the neighbors, which was a whole other thing that I did. So I kind of knew, like, you know, I was an editor of the newspaper in um, middle school. Like, it was a thing that I really liked to so, do. So you made your own newspaper and sold it around the block? Yeah, it was called the Full Drive News. And, and what I did you write it. about? What a I good actually, name. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, keep it simple. Um, the, one of the things I wrote about was a neighbor and how he was an arsonist or like a budding arsonist which was actually <laughs> which is actually true but um i oh, wow. for, i didn't source it so the parents when i like made copies and distributed this door to door at all the like neighbors houses Super the parents got really pissed and they were like steven is not an arsonist and i was like well actually he is but well, like, what exactly is an arsonist by uh, the way somebody who lights things on fire oh okay yeah so did he light some stuff on fire yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you just saw him lighting things yeah. on fire. I had first wit hand account, but I didn't. Um, I didn't source it correctly, uh. so they <laughs> correctly told my parents that they were going to sue us for libel. Mm. So I learned about libel law at a very young age, which is not to say don't go after the story, just like get the sourcing and like yeah. do it right. Yeah. So I kind of knew like, oh, this is something I'm proficient in. I did really well in English classes. You know, I knew I wasn't going to like major in algebra based on, you know, <laughs> my AP test scores yeah. and stuff like that. So when I was sort of being approached about going to various colleges on a tennis scholarship, and to be clear, I didn't have like the pick of, you know, it wasn't like every college wanted me to come play tennis for them. But of the schools that did, um, one of them had a very good journalism program. Um, so that brought me to Missouri. Yeah. I think what you what you said about um, being passionate about something at a young age, but knowing that you're not going to do that full time is super. Oh, it it resonates really well Whoa, with me. Jinx. Yeah, <laughs> jinx me. Because um, I mean, for me growing up, I was like the theater kid. Um, I was in all the plays and did all the musicals, but I knew that I wasn't going to pursue it, and I always wanted to search for the other thing that I'm actually going to do with my life. Mm -hmm. And now I think. For for now, it's brand strategy, and and I love doing it. Mm -hmm. And for you, it seems like the thing that you found was journalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, same. Same. Yeah. I feel that same way. I was doing drums and studying jazz drums, and uh, I was looking at jazz schools and everything like that. And it, same thing. It's like I felt like this kind of like, yeah, but there's so many great drummers. You know, like you look at you know, you just watch YouTube, and it's like 
Jesus, that kid did that when he was nine years old. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, what the, what's the point, you know? So, yeah. but there is a point, right? Cause it brings Absolutely. you to things like this, which is racket. Yeah. yeah. You know? Completely. I would just say to that, I think, you know, it's really admirable and it's, I remember feeling really jealous because once in a while, I'm sure you met kids in high school or even younger, maybe who'd be like, this is what I'm going to be. I know it. Oh, like, totally. Yeah. You know? And when you're, especially when you're in your teens and, like, your identity is still, like, very much under construction, even in your 20s, like, you know, like we were talking about before, Tina, like, just the idea that you're still very much in sort of trial and error phase. And that's great. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it can be easy to be jealous of people who seem to just know exactly what that thing is. Um, For sure. And I think, sure, for some people that's, that's their path. But I also think... The people that I find really interesting, the people in my life who I always gravitated towards and brought into my sort of space were people who were sort of renaissance people, like Mm -hmm. jacks of all trade, people who have a lot of interests. Because the downside to being really, really into one thing is that you are really fucking boring. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, I've met some of the greatest musicians in the world, thanks to my parents, and some of them are incredible and interesting and interested in things and books and cities. Um, and some of them go on these world tours performing in every great music hall that you can imagine in all the great cities and they don't leave their hotel except to like play the concert and then they go back and order room service. I'm not saying, well, I am saying that that's not cool. Mm -hmm. It's not cool to me. Mm -hmm. Those aren't the type of people who I find really interesting. It's the people who are like, oh yeah, I'm doing this thing at a really high level and performing really well, whether it's music or sports or whatever. And also I'm going to take the time to like go check out the like go again exhibit and have some thoughts about that and have it affect me in some way because I really respect people who have very sort of holistic 360 yeah, degree lives mm-hmm. yeah exactly multifaceted people are way 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 more interesting to me even if Agreed. their peaks are less high and I think that those the people who have those multifaceted aspects to themselves are the way are the people that end up um, you know bringing a lot of other inspiration to other people as they're developing things like racket as you're making it and you know, say I still play in a band like that's it that doesn't mean I have to be some, you know, uh, monumental jazz drummer like playing, like you said, in some great music hall or, you know, if you you do an acapella group or do something that, <laughs> it, you know, inspires people to do acapella. You know what I mean? Like these things, yeah. they can totally exist. And um, a lot of the times the way that they do is because of somebody who had other skill sets and other interests and a desire to learn more also on that note it seems like to me i feel like that's where innovation comes from too is -hmm. is where when two really different things come together Mm -hmm. um because that when you think laterally and compare a specific thing to something else that happens in another industry and that's how you innovate something else so why did you decide to make racket This isn't an idea. This isn't the kind of project that feels like we're, like, pulling it out of thin air and it's, like, total inspiration, like a painter looking at a blank canvas being like, oh, I just, like, you know, I moved in this direction or Mm -hmm. I'm inspired by these color choices or these angles or whatever it is. Um, For us, it's so obvious that there should be this thing. And when we came upon the idea, it was shocking to us that nobody had done it. And by it, I mean... Racket is a very specific thing with a very specific viewpoint. I mean, in on one sense, on one hand, it's a super, you know, pan subject lifestyle brand sensibility that spans politics to culture to fashion and history and travel. That's all stuff that we like, mm-hmm. and we're as we've been talking about, both multidisciplinary people who bring in a lot of different types of people to our worlds. Mm-hmm. On the other hand. 
if you're a fan of tennis and you watch it on TV or listen to broadcasts of it or podcasts or, um, you know, read about it, it's, or watch it live, which is the best way to experience it. It's so obvious what the shortcomings of that conversation are and how they're not captured in any kind of media. And what I mean by that is if you're somebody who really likes understanding scores or watching backhands from a three-quarter inch, a three-quarter camera angle view, then you're perfectly well served. But if you look at the writing, the art, the sort of fashion, there's a very big hole, especially compared to other sports or other sort of pastimes, that we felt like we could fill immediately just by being people who had a bunch of sort of ideas and material like that stuff I, I know this is going to sound crazy but it takes care of itself it's like so obvious to us what we're doing oh this writer obviously they should talk about like this or this or this thing mm-hmm. um this illustrator we have to get them involved somehow is it a cover or is it like a triptych in the middle of the book or is it like little sort of interstitials that we sprinkle throughout a story like the making of it is so easy to us and the choices about oh should we do a fashion collaboration with this like cool hipster brand that does like men's shirts but could do a bucket hat like that stuff is just so easy it feels like we're plucking it fully formed out of the ether because Mm. we know what the sort of tennis conversation should be and that has kind of determined how we approach things and and not to to beat a dead horse with this point but like so much of this world is um really really it's like a huge missed opportunity that the tennis conversation hasn't looked a lot more like you know earlier we were talking about baseball and the culture of baseball what is the culture of baseball sure it's like following your favorite team or like you know understanding a curveball versus um you know a sinker maybe but more than that it's like what does it feel like to go to the baseball game what does it feel like to collect baseball cards what does it feel like to play or to watch like little league all of that stuff is all encompassing football is about yeah like watching completions or like routes but it's also about barbecue and community and like getting drunk in a parking lot throwing (laughs) cornhole you know um and i think what we felt like because we were people who consumed all of this other media and sports and ideas in other arenas understood just how limited and myopic the tennis conversation is especially in this country which is just about like who won today and who lost um it doesn't even really sort of try to say like oh you know i was having a conversation with somebody we're doing a fashion collaboration with and he was talking about how he's about to go to the lingering coast in italy with his wife and he was so excited to tell me that there were these two beautiful red clay courts on a cliff overlooking the ocean and this guy was going to go to a cafe every morning and, like, find Pasquale and Marco and the Luca and, like, the men and women in town who were tennis enthusiasts and, like, just spend his weeks there playing with them, being on the court, getting his socks red with, you know, clay, and then having, like, cappuccinos and cortados at the cafe with them afterwards. That's a tennis conversation. That's a lifestyle conversation. It encompasses travel. It encompasses a way of living. It encompasses, like, a way of understanding different people, certainly in a different country and a different culture. And you would not understand that if you didn't. Um, we, we think what we're doing with the magazine is, tr- is trying to include that part of it. That's the equivalent to going out to a baseball game and, like, getting a bag of peanuts and a cold beer. Mm. And it doesn't really matter what the score is. And it doesn't really matter if you hit your forehand well or even what a forehand is. People who don't play tennis could appreciate that. 
Um, and I think we want to make the conversation more about that sort of thing because it feels more inviting mm -hmm. and it makes it more about the lifestyle where you can just travel with your rackets and wherever you are, find a court and all of a sudden be talking to locals, be experiencing a different view than most people are going to get if they just go to the city's, you know, museum or one sort of landmark place. And I think that's all part of what we want to do with the magazine. And it's not hard to put it together just because we we think there's so there's so few of those stories being told in one place we feel like it's it's really easy for us to to do it so let's dig a little deeper in the beginnings of racket magazine um you were at a full-time job um working at acast acast yep and how did you guys even i know that you you mentioned you know your founder for a long time and how did the conversation start how did you even put the magazine together because when you tell someone oh i'm going to start a magazine it seems like it's a daunting task how did you even do it to put it together we spent 18 months talking to people who did it and like like i was just saying we knew that there were enough examples in new york alone although this is true in a lot of major cities london mm -hmm. in particular has a lot um but new york has plenty how did you guys do it what's the printer what does it cost can we get specs um, how much do you pay writers? What's the writer contract look like? You know, um, mm -hmm. David in particular, because he spent the last 10 years freelancing, had, you know, a good idea about how we should pitch contracts, what our editorial should be. Um, through a friend, we found a guy who doesn't even like tennis, but wanted to sort of on a lark design something really cool. He's like the kind of nerd who's like, oh, this paper, like, you'll never believe what I just got back from the sample envelope, you know, and it's like, David and Larry, our art director, mm -hmm. are, like, super nerds about this. They meet for breakfast <laughs> once a week and, like, talk about paper stock. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, I couldn't care less. But it also was nice to be able to be like, oh, cool, there's enough of us do who are interested in th the different aspects of this. Mm -hmm. David and I, for sure, who have a very strong sensibility overlap, but not the exact same nerdy interests. Like, I don't care what our paper stock is. Yeah. I want it to feel nice, full stop. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. I have a copy of it, and it really feels really, really nice. and really beautiful hard stock, and everything is beautifully designed yes, in thank the you. magazine. And that's Kudos not an accident. to uh, Larry and David. Then. Yeah, Larry and David. Um, <laughs> not I Larry first... David, but Larry and David. Not Larry David. No. Although, if you could rope him into the endeavor, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I, I, I kind of view my role as, like, I'm tossing grenades into the ether, being like, hey, what if we got this person? Hey, what if, like, we did this big idea? Mm -hmm. And then David is the person who's like, okay, this is exactly how it's going to work and here's like the eight pages that are going to be de dedicated to that mm -hmm. and like it's such a good conversation mm -hmm. um but to get back to your like sort of original question like it's so much about um understanding what the landscape was like asking a ton of people who are smarter and more experienced than us to give us sort of enough information to feel like we could do it um, you know, and to be clear, we're still very much learning. Like, we're switching printers, and we're still dealing with fulfillment issues, which will probably lead us to go from one company to another. Mm -hmm. So, like, running a business, that part of it is, like, really, really hard. I don't have an MBA. I don't really want one, but now I am kind of earning one through doing this. But I think, like, asking a bunch of people, and then honestly, because I meet all these people who are super, super creative and have great ideas, and the part that I think is really interesting and the part that usually fucks everyone up is the actual just doing it part. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? For sure. Because everyone's like, I have this great idea. Whether it's, I want to start a podcast, to um, I want to start a magazine, to I have a, this a Etsy store, blog, whatever. I want to start a band. It's like the amount of people who have that are like 95% of people. The right. amount of people who actually do it are maybe 5% of people, don't you yeah. think? Yeah, totally. Agreed. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And even if it fails, the people, the amount of like 
hesitation people have because I especially in my job now I talk to tons of people who want to start a podcast and I'll be like okay here's the menu here's the microphones you can splurge or you can go cheap Mm -hmm. you can get this fancy editing software or you don't need it but you know here's like the bare minimum and here's like the gold metal package yeah but they just don't do it or they spend a ton of time like fussing around and like preparing yeah. to do it but not doing it startup weekend has a great visual of this where they do um like every they do like a, a step and uh it's like inspire discover founder startup mm. and scale and then like corporation fortune 500 yeah and um you know everybody starts at this inspire phase Completely. where they're like i'm inspired to do something <laughs> um where only 10% of those people proceed to the next level on mm-hmm. all of them. Yeah. Um, so it's a really great visual for understanding kind of, you know, oh, like this is what it takes. Or like conceptually, like I have to go through hurdles and no ma- there's going to be circumstances later on that I can't control. But that first one, that first hurdle is really all self-involved. It's all discover. Mm-hmm. It's all about like learning, like you said, taking 18 months out and just talking to smart people. Mm-hmm finding the right teams. Those are things that like you can do on the side. How can somebody with no past experience or network this way start an independent magazine? Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people I've met in the independent magazine world actually aren't journalists like us. They're people who work in creative agencies. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about that is they come in with advertising relationships, which is good and which we don't really have. And that's been incredibly hard to create. Um, And they come in with a sensibility and a real... Uh, sort of clear uh, idea of marketing and presentation and relationships like with distributors and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, But that said, you don't have to have a creative agency background or a journalism background. I think what you need to do more than anything else is understand what your, what, what is your like niche community like message? Like what is participating in your thing? And I use that word specifically, not just like buying your thing, but like what is participating in your world feel like and Mm. why do people want to do it? In our case, it's a lot of, it's a lot honestly about what doesn't exist. Like people tell us all the time, like this is crazy. This never existed before. Like, why isn't there a hipster tennis club like the Soho house and, you know, feel about the Soho house, whatever you do, (laughs) um, you know, or Noya house or, a place that's like a membership club that basically feels like a cool version of what some of these things have been successful in other realms. So it could be that kind of an idea where it's like, oh, it's so obvious that nobody's done this. Why don't I do it? Um, Or it could just be like, I'm a super fucking weirdo into like origami and my world does not extend past origami. But if you like origami, like this is the place for you and there's going to be a podcast and we'll have events and we'll make fucking origami. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) if you're super, super into it, and you watch your margins, there's something for you to do in the world, I think. And I think that's more important than having a lot of media connections or mm-hmm. advertising relationships. This is the most self-actualized, most fully realized, most um, sort of integrated generation of Americans anyway that has ever existed. And I think the reason for that is because you don't have this expectation that work is supposed to be this thing that... I only care about because it gets me ahead or makes me money or allows me to like buy a house. It's like, no, no, no. Work needs to fulfill me. My relationships need to strengthen me or inspire me. My, uh, my side project needs to, um, you know, be scratching an itch that's existential, whether or not it turns into something that makes money or just turns my light bulbs on in a certain way. And I think like what I love about this generation and being kind of on the fringe of it, I feel 
like I'm sort of participating in it in a way like that's a such a freedom to not measure your success solely on the money that you earn and I think that's a real step forward societally for people to sort of say yeah cool your happiness isn't measured in your you know accumulation of things or wealth it's like what experiences have you had what are your relationships like you started this after you'd had uh, your son Peter um, how how was it starting something having a full-time job and uh, you know having a new son at the same time like what does that balance look like for you because a lot of people struggle with that type of thing and want to start something but they don't really know how when they want to put their attention towards their their kid yeah I think like the main thing that you lose when you have a child um, you know obviously you gain like insight into the you know <laughs> limitless potential of human history and put you know the mind and like endless love and all this stuff um, but you also like have no time and no energy so like time and energy are like exactly what you need to do anything pretty much right um but i found for me uh and this is true of david too because dave had a kid um one child at the time and now has two when we started the project and um it's interesting i i have told people and it's true that having a kid was like one of the incremental sort of mechanisms that made this happen and i think one thing in my experience, having a kid is um, good for is it forces you to prioritize ruthlessly. So you can't sit around. And we were talking earlier about how you spend a lot of time in your te- your teens and your twenties, like sort of, you know, Figuring trial out. and error, t- identity creation. Like, is this person going to be like one of my best friends or like somebody I potentially fall in love with, or is this like just another like beginning of a conversation that's not going to have any end? And like, who knows where the night will take me? Like, that's a fun energy, and it's a really like exciting space to spend like ten to twenty years in. Mm-hmm. But after a while, it also gets like really exhausting, and then you also kind of get, especially if you have a child, like you get tired of being like, oh. I don't know where things are. Why am I not like succeeding more? You have a lot of time for angst and agita and self-reflection in a way that can be maybe helpful, but also like really a hindrance sometimes. Hmm. And then, you know, for me, when I had a kid, it was super easy to basically focus on only doing the things that I really, really wanted to do. It made me, it made it super clear to me that I was going to have to really figure out how to get the most out of the like one hour a day that I get to myself. Give us some tips as to some actionable tips for our listeners as to how you ruthlessly prioritize your life. Um, Number one, I keep, I try to do inbox zero. So I answer or I'm so bad at that. Archive everything that comes in. I delete it because I've answered it or it's not relevant or I archive it because I might need the information later, but I've addressed it. So like I ruthlessly come in as it comes in as mm-hmm. much as I possibly can. The only thing in my inbox is stuff that like needs more thought. And I try to like periodically take time to do that. So mm. that's number one. I have a good tip for that one. Follow up then mm. is a free service. You forward it to follow up then oh, with a day. Yeah. And if you're like, I can't think about that for two days. Yeah. I use that and I just like clear out all that extra stuff that mm-hmm. needs more thought. That's like going to have an answer in a couple of days. And then you make time when you're in that more pensive place. Yeah. It's helpful. Yeah. Mm. That's really useful. So like deciding what can be done now and what like I need to spend time on later, but like also keeping that list of the things that actually need more time later to like as much as a small thing as I can has help is helpful. Um, the second thing is like I say what I mean 
and I ask what people mean a lot more than I ever did before. Like I used to pretend like, oh, cool, I got it. And then I wouldn't actually get it. Like, so is that a thing? And then it takes a lot of time to figure out what the actual ask is. If I'm asking you something or I need something from you, like you will know what it is. Um, I'm still like too verbose, obviously, and like too inefficient, but I'm trying to get better about just like, what's the ask? Are you asking me something? What is it? Or if I'm asking you, it's clear that I'm asking you that and not being ashamed about it. And like when people don't ask me a thing, I, I try not to ignore anybody, but I certainly don't like, I'm not helpful. It's like, I just want to pick your brand. It's like, nope. Are you asking for something? Like, what is it? And if the question isn't specific, that tells me that you're going to waste my time helping you figure out what your question is. And I don't, that's not time I have. Um, so those are like the main ones, just like being really direct and being really on top of what I can. And then when I try to um, and my wife would definitely say I'm, like, not good enough at this um, because I try, like, just trying to not be on my phone or engaged when I am done with work for the day. Like, trying to really, truly, like, leave it at the office. It's a little hard just because I work for a company that's in a couple different time zones. Um, you know, Stockholm's and London are, like, pinging me early in the morning and then, like, L.A. is pinging me, like, kind of late at night. Mm-hmm. But trying to just make separation between like time periods of action and being like at home so I can really be at home and like actually be refreshed and actually be you know disengaged is something that I'm like constantly working on and trying to get better at that was Caitlin biggest takeaway it's time to ruthlessly prioritize stop frou-frouing around don't be afraid to rethink how you use your time by being blunt with your decisions we want to thank Caitlin for coming and speaking with us at the rise podcast studio Rise is a co-working space and community of the world's brightest thinkers and doers, working together to create the future of financial service. Shout out to Mouth Media for mixing and mastering this session. We also want to thank our production manager, Shanna Elise. Go to our Facebook and Instagram to get our updates and subscribe. subscribe. Bye. 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 Bye.